Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Andrew Bennett. An autistic self-advocate and BCABA from Texas, Andrew has been a dedicated member of our community since 2019 and currently serves as a moderator in our online global autism community. He contributed to our responsive skills training as a committee member and has traveled on two Skill Corps volunteer trips, first to the Czech Republic and more recently to Kenya. Our Skill Corps volunteer program is an opportunity for self-advocates, family members, and professionals to travel to our international partner sites and collaborate with local stakeholders to ensure that all autistic individuals around the world have access to quality education, services, and employment. Responsive Skills Training, or RST, is a curriculum co-created with the autistic community to transform the way in which services are provided across the world. If you'd like to learn more about RST, please listen to episode 139 with co-creator Ann Byrne and our CEO, Molly Penny. In this conversation, we discuss Andrew's special interests, which include cooking and writing poetry, why Andrew decided to join the RST committee, his definitions of inclusion and affirming and how they apply to neurodiversity affirming practice in ABA, how to help an autistic person unmask, situations in which Andrew has felt disaffirmed, Andrew's experience as an autistic Skill Corps volunteer, and tips for other self-advocates thinking of going on a Skill Corps trip. In this episode, discover what's possible when belonging allows us to be who we are. To learn more about our organization and the work we do, please visit globalautismproject.org. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at autismpodcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I bring you Andrew Bennett. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thanks for coming on the show. Very pleased to be here today, Rachel. Yeah, you've been a member of our community for a few years, so I'm happy that we're finally bringing you on the podcast. I'm really glad to uh, get to come back after a few years and really go into some new places with our listeners and with our community. All right. So let's start by talking about your autism. How old were you when you discovered you were autistic? And what was that like for you? I discovered when I was 13 years old, um, when my parents finally told me um, I had been diagnosed when I was three and a half. And so to hear something about you that changed the way that you perceived a lot of your life could have been shocking. And for some people, it very much is. For me, I just had the ability to see at least to the degree that I could perceive and reflect upon my past at the time that it made sense of me feeling different than all of the other kids in school and for other people in general and why I seemed to be so passionately interested in some things and not really in others and why I was so fixated on my special interests. Hmm. What are your special interests? Well, I would list a few of them specifically because they do take up a lot of my time and my studies. I love cooking to death, as anybody that follows me on social media knows. I grew up in Houston, Texas, still live here today. So one of the most multicultural cities in the world, possibly even, but definitely the most in the United States. I mean, New York might compete with it, but so I was raised with a lot of um, international food as well as meeting people from other countries that have come to live here. And so I naturally got attracted to that and wanted to learn more about people from around the world. In fact, today, when I meet somebody from around the world, 
about the first 20 minutes of those conversations are about where they're from and their experience a lot of the time. Because I'm just so naturally curious about it. Mm. And in January, there was a multicultural festival that was running at the church that I grew up in. And I would get to visit booths with people from around the world who served their local cuisine to me. And so I never forgot that. I look forward to it so much. What are some of your favorite dishes to make? One of them would be a jollof rice from Nigeria, our partner site that we had for a while out there. And I grew up in that festival going to the West African booth all of the time because the people were so friendly. The costumes were incredible. The African crafts were awesome. So it made me feel like, oh, this is a welcoming place. So I naturally enjoyed making the dish. It's a big pot of rice and whatever meat you want. Oh, it feeds for me five meals <laughs> easily. Mm-hmm. When I'm hungry, maybe six if I'm not that hungry. So, yeah. And a lot of the foods from the places that I've been around the world, including like France or Germany or Czech Republic, Costa Rica, and now recently at Kenya. I tend to soak up dishes from where I've been and bake them a part of my daily life. It helps me to remember the good times I spent those places. So, Oh, yeah, that's a nice way. Are you able to try something, try a dish, and then just recreate it at home based on the flavors that you remember? Or do you look up the recipe? Mostly look up the recipe, but I can generally know what's in it. And I know if I see a recipe, like, that's probably what was in it. But... I modify the recipe all the time to make it better for me in my kitchen or the way that I personally like it or the proportions that work for me so that I don't try to figure out how to use like 10 ounces of ground beef. Like I get pound packs. So, right, right. But that's a playing into a cookbook that I want to write someday about the sensory adventures and the experiences that you have when you eat and cook and explore food from around the world and the way it connects you to certain places and memories in your life. If you remember that scene near the end of Ratatouille where Ego eats the Ratatouille and flashes back to his childhood, you know what I mean. (laughs) I haven't seen it, but I can imagine. Oh, that's a great idea for a book. I also really enjoy writing uh, poetry. I find it's a way of me being able to express myself artistically and learn to let out very deep and strong feelings that I wouldn't otherwise be able to express. I can feel them, but it's just so much that if you don't put it down and find a creative outlet, it can almost be painful if it's something that's really on your mind or that you want to express or that you want to move through also. Hmm. Would you be willing to share one of your poems with us? (sighs) Well, I have to think a little bit about which one, but there's a lot that I've written, but some of them are quite long. But I can remember one that I wrote that was a set of 10 that was based around a specific musical series of 10 pieces. Okay. Yeah, I can read this one. This one was called The Beauty Of. The beauty of hope is to believe there's a path through shit shadowed drear. The beauty of faith is to invade deepest dark and battle with fear. The beauty of love is to shout into a night. Now a light is here. Hmm. So what does that mean to you? It means these are three cardinal virtues and they all have their purposes that guide us through our lives and sustain us through difficult times and inspire us to find our why that allows us to transcend whatever circumstances we're in. I find also that I connect with different universal themes. Sometimes they're emotional, sometimes they're spiritual. Sometimes they're based around perseverance, hope, um, overcoming obstacles, and bettering yourself. They also connect with me and the way that I perceive the world and the way that my brain works, because I use defined forms that give my thought structure, but then I can easily veer away from them. So this was a simple haiku form, but also I might add a line or take away a syllable, depending on whether it seems to make sense. 
Like some, I, there was one poem where I, I used the line messy first draft, which was a theme that we used when we were in Kenya this year. But I made that six instead of seven in the traditional haiku form. because It's like, it's unfinished. So. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. All right. So you mentioned Kenya, and we'll definitely talk about that skill core trip later on in this conversation. But first, I wanted to talk about our responsive skills training that you were a part of. You were a committee member, a contributor to our curriculum that we developed. And for our listeners who don't know, there's a separate podcast episode specifically about this curriculum. It's episode 139 with Anne Byrne and Molly. And we're talking about a little bit of the why behind the reason for creating it. So in short, this curriculum is designed for that entry-level therapist, the one who is working directly with autistic individuals, whether they're children or adolescents or even adults. And we wanted to offer a training that helped clinicians or practitioners be responsive to the situation, responsive to the learner, and responsive to the culture that they are working in, which extends, you know, to the family's home. So this curriculum was co-created with the autistic community. And we also included some other family members, some parents, some siblings, and even other professionals in different areas of autism services. So we had some OTs, some speech therapists, some transition specialists, and of course, some BCBAs and RBTs. So Andrew, when this opportunity was presented to you, I remember you you were really excited. We were messaging back and forth and it seemed like you were kind of looking for a reason to get back involved with the organization. But what ultimately is the reason why you decided to join as a committee member? You were right. I was looking for a reason to come back and I didn't really know what my re-entry point would be. I hadn't been involved with Global Autism Project for about a year and a half. I had a lot of personal things to work through myself. So a lot of 21 was me really trying to take care of myself and then 22 doing a little more of that. So then those years and the experiences I had during that time were very challenging. And I found that if I had some kind of outlet for that, it would give my life and my experiences purpose. And I also remembered that Global Autism Project made a lot of effort towards inclusion and including autistic voices. And this particular project was designed towards making RBT training and in general, people in the ABA field more aware of what autistic people are really experiencing. And I knew now that with the experiences I'd had in the last year of practicum at school, like I've got something to go off of. I had some clients where I had to utilize neurodiversity affirming practices the way I understood them at the time. I was still learning. And I knew that I could bring those real life clinical experiences as well as my personal ones into this project. And I saw that there were only two days left to apply. I'm like, I better hurry up. So I just was like, this is a little scary trying to put my hat back into the ring, but there's no way that if I apply for this, I'm not going to get at least seriously considered. So let's go for it. And I was really glad to be part of something that made a difference. And I felt like in every single meeting, there was a lot of emphasis on hearing everybody. And I contributed to one of the roundtables that is in the final product about neurodiversity affirming care and principles. And I did review a lot of these slides as well. And it definitely took some time, but I was also studying for my BCABA at the time. So some of this material was actually pretty familiar and great review. By the time that I got through all of it, I felt like I knew what I wanted to do with my career in the future. And I also knew that like, I had a place in this community I can move forward. All right. So what are your definitions of inclusion and affirming and how do they apply to 
what we call neurodiversity affirming practice in ABA? I would define affirming first because my definition of affirming leads up towards inclusion, and that has its own separate story attached to it. But affirming is definitely a buzzword that we need to make sure that we define. If we have different ideas on what that means, we're not going to really be achieving true affirmation. So the technical textbook definition, as I understand it, would be to state and to show that something is true. Now, that might be for a logical proposition, but when you apply that to a person, whatever their experience is, or also what their identity is, is being affirmed. Like, this is a real, tangible, concrete, and even measurable thing, and it deserves dignity. If you have the affirmation that something's real, but not that it's deserving of dignity, then you haven't really gotten where you need to be. If you know that they deserve dignity, but you don't really know who they are, then you're halfway there also. They're both important. Now, affirming does require that what you're affirming is actually true, that, which means that you have to determine that before you can meaningfully affirm who somebody is. And let's, so let's say that we're talking about affirming somebody who's autistic. Okay, that could be either the person first language or the identity first language, depending on the way that the person wants to be called in that context. Because both of those are subjective expressions of an objectively true thing that there is an autism diagnosis or that the person's brain is built that particular way. You can verify that on a second order level by looking at the behavioral evidence, but the first order of that might be look in the brain and you see this is what we define an autistic brain looks like. You can go into that and you can show that to be the case, even if maybe the person's behavior doesn't always line up with it. And that might be the case because of masking. If we are affirming the way that somebody is expressing or presenting themselves or identifying as, but it's not true, then it's, and it's a mask, then are we really affirming that person or are we affirming their false self? And we have to think about when we are seeing people present in a way that's not in accordance with who they are and who we can verify and know them to be, like say that you know that I'm autistic, but then I present to you in a way that's normal or trying to hide that, or I explicitly say I'm not autistic or I can't be autistic or I want to be normal or I am normal. Like, how would you react to that as a clinician or just from person to person? Would you just go along with it or would you wonder why? Mm. Mm -hmm. Great points. Mm -hmm. So we have to think about how we approach that and ask the right questions instead of just immediately taking the way that somebody identifies as face value, because there could be a lot of reasons for that. So supposing that I said that I don't want to be autistic, then there might be reasons for that. I've met people as well as experienced myself several reasons. They may, for example, have had an autistic sibling or a parent and they don't really get along with them. So it's like, I don't want to be like that. Or they've had negative experiences in their lives because of their diagnosis. And so they just want to forget about it or deny it or push it away. Or They've heard myths like you can't get married, you can't be employed, you can't live on your own. It's like, well, I want those things. So if I want those things, I have to not be autistic. So either look normal or deny it. And a lot of times it is denial. It's not to say that's the case all the time. But we have to really deeply listen to people and where they're coming from when their means of presentation is out of line with who they are. And to look and listen to that from a functional point of view. And as a behavior analyst, you'd understand that, how to do that. But it's harder to do with adults presenting in particular ways in your daily life. So there is a function for masking. And if we ignore that, and particularly if we either just don't know what's really underneath, or we ignore that in the face of trying to meet the person where they're at when they're expressing themselves. Yeah, meet them where they're at, but it doesn't mean you have to keep them there. Mm -hmm. Help them to really express and understand who they really are. And if there's a barrier to accepting that, 
work through it. And that might be deep trauma. That could be the case. Right. People are rational beings and they don't tell lies without a reason. But sometimes that's more attractive than facing the truth. What are some of your personal experiences? Like, could you share maybe when you've had to mask or felt the need to and how you maybe changed your behavior to be more authentic after some kind of realization? It may depend on the place and the environment, whether I start out masking or it might also just immediately prove itself to be an affirmative environment. If, for example, I go into a new group of people and I struggle with social interaction with people I don't know too well, or I think that I might have made a social error, which is getting a little bit less common now that I'm growing in that area, but it still happens. I mean, we all still grow. Then the way that I present it when I sit down and meet with a particular person in the group or perhaps the group's leader, and I explain it, I say, I don't know if I understand this social rule. How do you think this person might have perceived that? Or what do you think of me in general and the way that I'm coming across? I may or may not include autism in that. And that may or may not be a good idea. And I think that might be a good way to tell the truth, but at least don't lie. So if you at least explain something, but you don't share everything, then it's not necessarily masking in that sense. It's masking on a certain level, but it's not being fully unmasked, but it's at least to a degree that the person can appreciate. So I've been able to open up and say, I'm nervous. This is a new group of people. I don't know them too well, or I feel like I might have offended this person. So in that scenario, I can then unmask a little. And then usually when people say, no, you're, you're doing okay, or this is something you can improve on, I can then explain a little bit more and sometimes let go of a little of the shame that is associated with masking. Mm. And now, like, for example, the young adult church group leader that is in charge of the group that I most commonly go to, she's fully aware. But it took a couple of specific things happening for that conversation to unfold. And now we're at a place where there's more acceptance. And I can sense every time I get feedback, it's affirming. It's like, no, there's nothing wrong with you as a person. Just make sure to work on this thing or you're doing all right. You can come talk to me anytime. And so in that environment, I do feel affirmed, even though there may be some challenges in navigating the implications of being autistic. Yeah. Could you give some examples of when you felt disaffirmed or you didn't feel included, I guess. Sometimes when I would go to bigger groups, I would feel as if I just didn't fit in or it was a struggle to make friends. And then sometimes I would look at other people and they're hanging out with each other and having a good time. And then I don't feel like I can break into that then sometimes I might feel disaffirmed or not really included in a group setting. If it feels like the person is getting along with me well, but because they have to, rather than they're showing an effort to sit down and talk and get to know me and ask me questions about my, my life, or they want to know more about my autistic lived experience, then I don't feel very included. Mm -hmm. I remember one time when I had talked a little bit about my own lived experience in the group setting and one of the people came up and said, oh, I didn't know you were autistic this whole time. I just thought you were really weird and a little bit annoying. And now I know a little bit better. I'm like, yeah, good start. At least now you're aware that there's something underneath. But if you didn't take the effort to dig into it, then you only got like 10% of the way there. Now, that was a starting point for him to perhaps let go of his perceptions and his impressions of who I was as a person, but it wasn't where we need to be. Mm -hmm. And I have certainly had experiences in the clinical setting as well as in my personal life that led me to join the RST uh, project. First, there were some disaffirming things that happened in my life, as well as some experiences in 
clinical settings as an RBT that made me think, you know what? Okay, the way that we're approaching this isn't really affirming the clients. Mm -hmm. Could you share that story? Yeah. From the uh, clinical side of ABA, I was initially taught in a very Lavasian style. It was very straightforward, mostly escape extinction based, mostly involving teaching things that may or may not be relevant to that particular client. It was very ables based and that's not a bad thing as long as you don't go completely by the book for everybody. I can remember times where we were asked to require the student to eat food whether they really wanted to or not. Now we mild, we mellowed it out a little bit by not force feeding them, but they just wouldn't be able to move on to the next thing until they put a, a bite in their mouth and eventually they do it. And then mom and us would refer to it as, oh, make him eat it. And like, yeah, I wasn't really too comfortable with that language, but we weren't forcing it down his throat. So I guess I was like, it was kind of okay with it, but not really. But there were many older clients and some of them very verbal and aware of what was going on, where we do escape extinction for a good hour and we'd get beaten up, they would rang themselves through the ringer trying to get out of it. And I never felt good about it. I mean, I don't think anybody feels good about that, but most people will just say, this is just how this runs. It's for a bigger purpose in the end. And if you think of it that way, and the way that you see it is getting them to comply with what you're asking them to do is more important than what they're experiencing at the moment. You can justify that, but really, is that true in that particular scenario? And like, was that really worth it? Mm -hmm. Particularly when they don't really understand what they're doing wrong. It's extraordinarily distressing. I can point to one time where I, and this kid had ADHD, I remember sitting him down at a desk right against the wall, like finish this thing. And that was for 20, 25 minutes or so, or much longer than that even. By the end of it, he was like, I can't even express how I'm feeling. And I'm like, you know what? I can't understand what you're going through. And I said, no more. Like this was probably genuinely hurtful to him as a young kid. And I wasn't okay with that any longer. And like, if I could take that back, I absolutely would. But it's gave me more, more understanding of why just purely using the same programming for everybody is important and why sometimes it's not about compliance anymore. Sometimes they're genuinely feeling threatened and they won't be able to do what you ask them. Whether they understand how to do it or not, it's just at that moment they can't. And I was able to put that into practice one time with a client recently, the very last one before I um, finished as an RBT and attained my certification where, and I was even able to have a discussion with my supervisor at the time about this. Like, okay, there are going to be times when he's having a pure meltdown and he's not having a tantrum. And you can see that when he's very overstimulated, like he can't restrain himself from stimming or just running from place to place. Yeah, he's not able to respond to you at the time. We have to contain the situation until he can respond and then try again. So you take those experiences that you had, and even if they were ones that you regret, and you can use them to make better treatment in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, I was kind of trained in that way too. And there are still a lot of clinicians out there who are practicing that kind of like, quote, traditional ABA. So it just gives so much more importance to our project, to responsive skills training, RST, because we're able to provide lived experiences from people who are autistic themselves and can speak for why we shouldn't be practicing that way. So I know it's not easy to speak up, especially as a the person on the other side, as the therapist, kind of feeling that guilt. Like I know what you're talking about when you say that you wish you could take it all back. The important thing is to now just move forward with it and what what are you going to do about it now? Yeah, I can remember, yeah, when we were talking about it at the beginning of Kenya that like we could really feel how genuine you were. And I am glad that we're both meeting on the same page as that. Yeah. And you said you have a 
personal story? The personal thing that occurred in my life that led to me really realizing what affirming meant and how important it was and how being genuine and teaching me about the difference between a fixing versus helping mindset as well. Now, I always understood this on a certain level, but it wasn't until I experienced it for real that I grasped what it actually feels like. So about three and a half years ago, I had one experience with with a behavior therapist, a new RBT that had pretty much just started their grad career. And we were going out as friends a couple of times. Things seemed to be going pretty well. It looked like we were going to become more than friends, but then it didn't happen. And after a couple of months, and she just realized I needed to know why. And it was pretty unsettling to hear that she had seen a lot of the social mistakes that I'd made and was looking at this from a clinical point of view and realized, you know what, if this gets any more serious than it does, it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, for me to keep my behavior analyst hands off. And, you know, she realized in that moment that it was better that we're not a couple. And it was very hard for me to hear at the time. And for a very long time, it was, I felt very disheartened and let down and even betrayed because up until this point, this person had treated me with the respect and the dignity that I deserved and seemed to be one of the only people in the world that really cared. And then to have that come around and bite you in the back is not something you forget. Yeah, And that's bad enough. But then the second, the part that makes it worse is that I had to coexist with this particular individual for a long period of time afterwards. And the stuff it was digging out of me was gut-wrenching. And that you have to face that again and again for a couple of years is not something I would wish on my worst enemy. Hmm. In the long term, What it taught me was that there are people that will be able to put their biases aside and care about you the way that you really are. And she was young, first year at the time, so she didn't really know any better. And over time, I've come to at least start forgiving her for that. But in the end, it was a selfless thing, even if it had a shade of disaffirmation to it. So if you had met me and I came in to see you and expressed that I didn't want to be autistic or I just wanted to be normal, like I said earlier, and you didn't ask why, you might have missed this. And you wouldn't have known that inside of me, I was trying to hide being autistic because I felt that that was why this happened. And that if I had been more normal, then this wouldn't have happened to me. And that if somebody that close who appeared to be so affirming could turn on me, then anybody could. So I went through a long period of severe depression and I was very angry and bitter for a long time. And during the part of summer of 21, I was coming very close to wanting to hurt myself. Because it was just so bad that I was losing control of everything in my life. And I didn't want to go through it for another minute, but I knew that it was going to still be going on for a while. And I just didn't know where to turn. But it was through understanding what the real intention was and what could have been done better that I was able to pull through that time. And through the help of some people that were truly affirming, including the boss that I met right after that worst summer, who included me in everything. And felt made me feel as if all of my experience and all of the insight that I had brought through the last 31 years mattered. Like there were clients that were coming in that wanted to whose parents wanted to eliminate stereotypy. And so I was part of that discussion. There were clients that were craving sensory input and 
initially we had to come at it from, yeah, this is just part of who he is. We're not going to stop that. And also we need to make sure that we are giving concrete directions because if you don't give him concrete directions, he's going to interpret it differently and they're not going to make sense. Like a lot of these experiences, as well as the respect that everybody showed me, like that's helped to turn my life around. And it was very difficult to extend trust to somebody in a position of power after what I went through, but I was able to do it. And that was the greatest boss that I ever had. And when she moved on and to another job, I was really struggling because I'd never had a better experience and it came at the right time. It showed me the other side. It showed me a person who would treat me as different and not less. Now, how, does, how do we take this experience and do something with it? Because I believe that in some way, in some dimension, the things that we go through in our lives, particularly the really painful ones, even if they don't happen for a reason, they have a purpose that you can take from them. Sometimes things just happen and they're really terrible. But you have the choice to either let those grind you down and live in bitterness, or you can become better. And even if you, even if it's just you that becomes better, but also you make the rest of the field better as well. So let's say, what does this imply about the ABA field? How does it fail this person that I'm talking about? How has it failed us? You can't say that there aren't flaws in the field and the damage isn't caused by people who do ABA. And there are many people listening right now that had no idea that they were fellowshipping and studying alongside this person for such a long time. And if that makes you uncomfortable, it should. Now, you may very well be aware of times when you've hurt somebody in the field, like we've discussed that. And you may be aware that you and everyone around you has immense power and ability to do harm. And that should scare you. But you should also know that you're a better person if you have the chance to do harm and you have the ability to do so, but choose to do good. Mm. The way out is not to become tame and put away your power or in the context of this field to do away with it. And I know there are many people that are hurting that want to. And I hear you and I feel you. ABA is dangerous, but it can be dangerous in the good way in the sense that it transforms the world, it transforms the social order, it transforms the way that we see autistic people and transforms their capabilities. No leader is not dangerous. Nothing different and creative and original is not dangerous. But if you use it in a way that makes a difference, then you've either redeemed past sins in your life, past sins of the field, or even experiences that you've been through that have led you to that point. And the RST is a way for us to accomplish that. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Andrew. You know, I'm, I'm sorry that all of that happened to you. And, you know, I want you to know, I hope you can feel it, that you are such an important member of our community and that you are cared for here. So, you know, I'd like to now maybe shift the conversation to talk about your experience in Kenya. So this was your second Skill Corps trip, right? Yeah, it was. First one was in Czech Republic. In what year was that one? July 2019. 2019. Almost four years ago. Yeah. And you participated in our pilot trip. This is our Skill Corps 2.0, our new model. We were testing it out in Kenya with some Skill Corps alums, some people who have traveled with us in the past, and some of our international partners as well. So what was your experience like on this second trip? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I hadn't traveled for almost four years, and four years went by since that time, and this experience I'm just describing just happened right after that first trip. So I brought a lot of good and difficult experiences into this. And 
I felt like this was a second chance, a place to start all over again, but also to bring absolutely everything that I had gone through. The sense of what it's like to be disaffirmed, what we want to avoid, as well as the joy of being affirmed and what we want to create into a place far, far away that needs to hear voices like ours. And I was the only self-advocate on this trip, and I felt a huge load on my shoulders. I joined the trip at the end of January of 23, a couple of weeks after I originally heard about it. I thought, oh, this is really neat. Um, it's spring break. I could theoretically do it. Do I want to? Can I fundraise the money in that short amount of time? I've already done that once and it was a lot of work, but now I have to do a little bit more in like a few weeks. And am I mentally ready for this? I was still recovering because this has been a long process. <laughs> I was still getting used to being part of the Gap community again and putting myself out there in a very deep and vulnerable way and braving that wilderness was just an insanely difficult thing for me to do. And it took me a couple of weeks of back and forth. I'm like, no, no, this is the year that you want to do something amazing and give your life meaning right now and do something special. And I thought, let's just go for it, see what happens. If I'm meant to be on this trip, I will find that out. And I got in the next morning after I applied and sat down to business and there were bumps and that, uh, peaks and valleys in the fundraising process. But I found that even in the less than four weeks, if I really put my mind to it and I found the why, then I could do it. And given the, the deep why that I had behind why I wanted to do this trip, it was one of the only whys that could be strong enough to motivate me to put aside other things in my life I was really wanting to put focus on, as well as put my fears away and step forward and do something incredible. And I found that my why was, I want to make a better world. I want to teach people what it's like to be affirmed and what it's like not to be and help them to see how they can be part of that community that's affirming. I knew that I had a philosophy of life, a why, stories to tell, and an overall message to bring on this trip. And I saw over the course of the fundraising that there were little signs that were confirming to me, this is what you were meant to be doing this year. When I got to Kenya, it was utterly transcendent in a way that is not possible to put into words. From the very beginning of the trip, it felt like I was important and I was heard and I was needed and treasured. The very first day I was planning the airport, um, <laughs> the airport transfers for all of the other teammates in all of the discussions that we had about neurodiversity affirming care, culture shock, and learning to appreciate differences from what you're used to. I felt like an essential valued member. And this time I also felt like people included me in the conversations and were genuinely curious. And it just felt like I got so much attention that like, even with the way that I had learned to overcome my own imposter syndrome, it was almost just too much. And I can remember having to face every single one of my, the demons that I've been battling and the insecurities that I'd had to face over my life. Some of them I wasn't quite ready for, but most of them I was able to face up to and learn to take something from this trip to move forward. It's been three months since I came back and I still have flashbacks and, and just in awe about how deeply people can love and care about me and affirm me as a person. And when you have a sense of how valuable you truly are, it can make you freeze up because you don't believe that you deserve it. And I'm still having to teach myself that I did. Mm. I've had to push people who want to meet with me back a little bit because it's just been too much to talk about for a while, but it's getting easier when I connect with people and there are people that somewhat grasp what it was like to have something world changing happen to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we are 
actively recruiting for more autistic self-advocates to join these trips because it's important for the team, it's important for the community that we're collaborating with, you know, for the employers who are thinking about hiring autistic adults, for everyone there involved on these trips. It's important to hear from autistic voices directly. So to wrap up with one last question, what advice would you give to any autistic self-advocates who are maybe on the fence about applying for a skill core trip? The most important thing that I would say to autistic self-advocates is that you matter and you have dignity and you're different for a reason and you're going to experience that if you sign up for this trip and you put your whole self into it and you don't hold anything back and you be fully authentic. I like to quote Brene Brown a lot. And one of those quotes is that true belonging does not require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. And there's another quote from a saint that if you be who you were made to be, you'll set the world on fire. I know what that feels like now. And I think that you can too. You just do not realize how important you are to the world. And there isn't a place that I could imagine that's better to do that than traveling with a skill court and being part of this organization. It will be pretty stressful, but really anything this transformative is going to be, <laughs> it's going to really stretch you to your limits. But we have had 20 years of experience working in other countries, and we do a lot of work to ensure that the experience that you have is fully immersive and you get a sense of what the place you are in is like. And also, now that we have more focus on bringing the staff with us on trips, there's more support and there's more check-ins. People will check in, make sure that you're doing okay and ask you what you need. And they'll always have a debrief at the end of a day, like the plus delta, where you get to say how the day went, what you're happiest about during the day, what you were proudest of doing, and then what you would like to change or improve about the day if you, if it's something that you can. There's many activities where you get to know all of your teammates and whoever the partners that you're visiting are. And there's never going to be a time, ideally, when you're going to be left alone or not feel connected to somebody else. And Connection is essential to our human experience. And if we don't feel that, then whenever we're overcome by challenge, we can crumble. But I've had a lot of challenges and thankfully I had an incredibly supportive team and we are really want to be sure that our people experience that when they're on the trip. If you're autistic and you're thinking about traveling and you don't feel like you fit in, you fit in here. There's a saying that I like to quote, everyone is an alien somewhere. Every single one of us has a sense of not belonging somewhere, someplace, sometime with somebody for some reason. But it's about how you respond to that that determines whether the person feels affirmed or disaffirmed. And I like to also talk about the last experience I had in Kenya while I was leaving. I got a bolt to go back to the airport and the guy that was driving me, his name was Tom. I don't know his last name. I don't, <laughs> but I told him what we were doing there. And he said, Oh yeah, my uh, sister has an autistic child. I'm like, well, what do you think about that? Or how do you feel about it? And he's like, yeah, they're, they're different. They can have their challenges, but once you get to know them and what they need, it's just like an, any other person. And in the sense that it's not like they're, the same as other people, but they can be treated just like anybody else. And I thought that was an amazing way to cap off that experience. And we hope to make in wherever we're going, we hope to make more comps. And mm -hmm. it takes you being who you are and going somewhere who doesn't know you and teaching you who they are, who you are to make a Tom. Tom got that way because of the autistic people in his life. Not that he wasn't a good person before, but 
if everyone was like Tom, then our goal as an organization would be accomplished. We'd be in a world where not only does autism knows no, or know no borders, but they're no longer needed. Mm. That is the goal. <laughs> yeah. Anything else? Life is a challenge. It's full of pain and suffering and joy and connection and agony and euphoria. And you have to balance the good with the bad. But when you're going through something difficult, to know that there's hope and there's worth in life and find the courage to be despite whatever you're going through. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Andrew. Thank you for sharing your story with us. You're welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. If you're a self-advocate wanting to share your life experiences, a professional working in the field of autism education, or a family member looking to connect with the global community, our Skill Corps program is an opportunity you don't want to miss. Work alongside our global autism partners to help ensure that all autistic individuals around the world have access to quality education, services, and employment. To learn more about our Skill Corps program, check out episodes 100 and 132, featuring Skill Corps volunteers that have been to our partner sites in Saudi Arabia and India. Listen to them talk about their transformative experiences and see what Skill Corps can offer you. Begin your journey today at globalautismproject.org forward slash skillcore. As a listener of our show, take advantage of the coupon code AUTISMPODCAST, that's no space in all caps, to waive the application fee. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.